U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined once again by the third, possibly second what? officer. Oh, maybe, what? maybe. It Christoph. Yay! I'm perfectly happy being third mate, and the temptation of moving up is very exciting. Uh, thank you for having me, Captain. You're welcome. Last time we were talking about torpedoes, we were going to finish it up today. Was that? How's that sound? Oh yeah, sounds cool. All right. So, are you ready to get underway? I thought you were going to say underwater, but yes, I'll, I'm ready to do both. Well, you get hit by a torpedo, you will go underwater. Ah, uh, yes. All right. So we're going to pick right back up where we left off. We're going to talk about warheads. Finally, after all of this. We talk about, we've talked about the delivery method this entire time. Now we talk about what's being delivered. So the warhead is usually some sort of aluminized explosive. This is because the sustained explosive pulse produced by the powdered aluminum is particularly destructive against underwater targets. Torpex was a brand that was used until about the 1950s when it got replaced by the PBX compositions. Now, nuclear torpedoes have been developed. There, there's an example of one like the Mark 45 torpedo. That seems like a bad idea. I mean, right? If the distances aren't super great, I don't... I would think you'd have to be far away from a nuclear explosion for it to not affect you. Well, depends on the yield. Yeah, that's true. Now, the, the Mark 45 isn't used anymore. This was used until 76. But, you know, it's been replaced like by the Mark 48. I like how consistent they are with their numbering. I remember back when it was just a Mark 7. Right. Well, the old Mark 45s were collected, given conventional warheads, and then, you know, sold. That's good. I think. <laughs> the warhead that was used had a dimension of about 17 inches and 34 inches long. The core was about 311 to 320 pounds, and it had a yield of about 11 kilotons. Whoa. That seems like a lot. So I know that they measure nuclear yield in reference to dynamite, right? So yes. Just 11,000. Okay. It's a lot of dynamite. Uh, the kiloton is equivalent to 4.18 for terajoules. I'm looking at a chart and trying to suss it out. You know, let's do this. See if I can find a converter. Oh, while you do that, I can say, hey, everybody listening, you should join our Discord where we can discuss yields and you can see pictures and interact with other listeners and things like that. Huh? <laughs> okay, so what was it? 11, did I say? Yes, 11,000. 11? Or 11 kilotons. 11 kilotons, not, not 11,000. Right, well, I translated, translated the kila into thousand, so... So that's about 11 million kilograms of TNT. Oh, yeah. Much less than a conventional uh, ballistic missile. 
It's not City Destroyer. I, yeah, I hope not. I mean, with a, you're delivering it not too far away from your ship, so you don't want it to be that massive, I imagine. So in lightweight anti-submarine torpedoes, these are designed to penetrate submarine hulls. And they typically use like a shaped charge. And then detonation can be triggered either by direct contact or by a proximity fuse, which uses sonar or and or magnetic sensors. So contact detonation. This is when a torpedo with a contact fuse strikes the side of its target. There, the explosion creates a bubble of expanding gas. The walls of the this expanding gas moves faster and faster and faster than the speed of sound in water. This is what causes a shockwave. So the side of the bubble, which is against the hull, rips away the external plating, creating a breach, usually a very large breach. Then the bubble collapses in on itself, forcing a high-speed stream of water into said breach, destroying bulkheads and machinery in the path of the water. Wild. So the proximity detonation is a detonation usually right under the keel of the target. This explosion, again, creates the gas bubble, which, is, which they hope will damage the keel and the underside, underside plate of the target. Now, the most destructive part of this explosion is the up thrust of the gas bubble which will lift the ship in the water. The hull is designed to resist downward pressures rather than upward pressures. So this is going to cause a huge amount of strain. So when the bubble collapses, the hull is going to fall into the void that had just been created. And this sags the hull. Then the now weakened hull is going to be hit by the water coming up, rushing into that void, causing structural failure on the vessels up to about the size of like a modern frigate. This can result that the ship just splits in two and sinks. So this is really fascinating. I never really thought about how a torpedo rips a ship apart like that. Um, I imagine modern designs, or even not that modern designs, would have the armor and plating in place uh, beneath the surface for specifically for torpedoes and, um, I guess, submarine or airplane-delivered torpedo attacks. Uh, do you know when that type of armoring was instituted in ships as a general practice, or was it? Is it just kind of has always been? stronger on the bottom to prevent it from breaking and sinking. Well, there's always been discussion armor plating, where to put it, how to put it. You also got to take into consideration weight, buoyancy. You put more and more armor on a boat, the slower and slower and less maneuverable it gets. So there's always been consideration of putting the armor on. It's just what's the best way to utilize it and whether it's going to be effective or not. Because as you just saw, water is very good for explosives. I can see that. Okay, I'm just curious. Uh, carry on, Captain. 
no worries no worries so we'll get more into the damage a the damage that is caused is depends on the shock factor value this is a combination of the initial strength of the explosion and the distance between the target and the detonation so there's also keel damage is referred to keel shock factor so if the explosion directly underneath the keel then the hull shock factor and the keel shock factor will be equal but explosions that are not directly beneath the ship will have a lower keel shock faster remember the keel is the backbone of the ship everything is built onto the keel so the keel goes the ship goes so direct damage is created only by contact detonation this is the hole that appears into the side of the boat so among the crew they're going to get fragmentation wounds and then the flooding typically occurs in one or two main watertight compartments now if your apartments aren't watertight you're done so this type of damage will usually sink smaller ships and disable large ones then we have the bubble jet effect this is what happens when a mine or torpedo detonates in the water a short distance away from the ship it creates the aforementioned bubble and due to the pressure difference, the bubble will collapse from the bottom. The bubble is, of course, buoyant because it's a bubble. And so it does rise towards the surface. So if the bubble does reach the surface as it collapses, it will create a pillar of water that can go over a hundred meters into the no air. No kidding. I bet that's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's It's actually cool to watch. Just hope that you're not in that path uh, of that. Right. So if the conditions are perfect and the bubble collapses into the ship's hull, the damage of the ship can be extremely bad. The collapsing bubble forms a high-energy jet that can break a meter-wide hole straight through the ship, flooding one or more compartments, and is capable of breaking small ships apart. Oh, I imagine so. Yeah, the, the crew in the areas are more than likely just killed instantly but they don't it doesn't cause much more damage other than the direct area of effect so during that incident off of south korea remember that torpedo attack we were talking about last week yes this is the effect that happened to it it was the bubble jet effect which broke the boat in half got it it's amazing what i i guess maybe not surprising given that we're on the U.S. Navy History Podcast, but it's the destructive nature of water is very impressive. Oh, it is. Now we get to the shock effect. So this is when a torpedo detonates at a distance from the boat. The change in water pressure causes the ship to resonate. So this is frequently the most deadly type of the explosion, if it's strong enough. The entire ship is shaken violently, and everything on board is tossed around. That's why you always, get when you get underway, you always hear, stow for sea, making sure everything is locked down. But engines are ripped up from their fastenings, cables from wherever they're being holded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
if the boat is shaken badly enough, it will sink quickly because of hundreds or thousands of small leaks. Yeah, that would be impossible to manage. That's I can see why that's more dangerous. Now, the crew, they don't fare any much better than the boat because the shaking tosses them around. And if it's bad enough, this will cause injuries to knees and other joints in the body. And, you know, things being tossed around, hitting people. And there's also if the person is standing on the surface, connected directly to the hull, the gas cativation and shock front differential over their entire body could kill them or at least stun them especially divers oh yeah so yeah that's i i don't even know how to process that i'm trying to visualize a torpedo detonating and then the crew inside the ship and how they're affected and that just that's horrible torpedoes suck when you're on the receiving end yeah so control surfaces are essential for torpedoes to keep its course and depth. A homing torpedo also needs to be able to outmaneuver its target. So they have very good hydrodynamics. And, you know, because of the energy limitation, they're very efficient. Yeah. So launch platforms. So they could be launched from a different variety of platforms. Submarines, surface ships, fixed-wing aircraft, unmanned naval mines, and naval fortresses. And also helicopters. And a lot of times they're used in conjunction with other weapons. Like the Mark 46 torpedo used by the Navy is the warhead section of the anti-submarine rocket. And the captor mines. The captor mine is a sensor platform underwater that releases a torpedo when they find hostile boats. So, let me get this straight. Uh, my knowledge of mines is limited, mind you. Um, I used to think that they were usually either tied below surface so the ships couldn't see them. Or they might be at the surface level. But what would happen would be uh, they were passive, such that a ship would run into them and explode. But you're saying there are some mines that are either they can be controlled remotely or maybe there's some kind of setup where they will launch torpedoes at a passing ship. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. You know, the more advanced ones nowadays. That, that's crazy. I Yeah, this, this they are deep water anti-submarine naval mines. It is a pretty much an aluminum shell anchored to the ocean floor. And when it has a torpedo in it, it has a life expectancy of between two weeks and two months. Okay, so you wouldn't deploy these long term. This is like to guard uh, maybe a strait or something in the very near future. Like you expect a contest, right? Where you would think an enemy submarine would approach from. I see. Huh. They will use the acoustic sound to identify and track different hostile submarine signatures, surface ships, and friendly submarines. Because each boat has a unique... Like profile or... Yeah, acoustic profile. 
And once they identify it, it's loaded into a computer, sent out to the rest of the fleet. So once that acoustic profile is hit, they know, boom, that is the Russian submarine Gorbachev or whatever. And we are not at war with them, so we will not fire. Or, oh, we're at war with them. Fire away. Well, that's, I guess, better than like a landmine situation where you deploy them and then war's over and then you still got a crap load of landmines everywhere that could kill indiscriminately. So I guess that's progress. You mean like in Vietnam where they're still finding landmines? Oh, yeah. Probably not as big of a naval concern, but... Well, no, not necessarily. Back in the Gulf War, the first one, there was a mine incident with the USS Missouri. They hit an underwater mine that was tethered to the bottom. And luckily, it bounced off the hull before it detonated. You can go visit her right now, and there is a dent in the hull where it hit. Whoa. Well, it's nice that they gave, him a, gave the Missouri a sporting chance by uh, bouncing off first. I appreciate that. Well, it just, it's an Iraqi mine. They weren't built the best. Yeah. And besides failure rates, if the, the hull of the mine leaks, then salt water's added, corrosion, yeah, easily disabled. And I think as soon as like five years ago, we had a mine on one of the beaches in Corpus Christi. That just washed ashore. Well, that's, uh, at least it was visible and avoidable. That's <laughs> pretty crazy, though. Well, it was washed ashore. Corpus Christi bomb disposal guys came out and blew it up. Nice. I bet that was the best day of their lives. It's like, they get the call. There's a mine on the beach. Yes. Anytime these guys get to blow something up, it's the best day ever. <laughs> That's what they do. So, launching platforms. So, ships, of course, were the original launching platform. But uh, originally, they were the, the torpedoes were intended to launch underwater. So, the Whitehead Torpedo Group, they originally intended their torpedoes to be launched underwater. And they got pissed off because they found out the British were launching them above water. And they were like, no, no, don't do that. They are too fragile for that. But once they saw that the torpedoes survived, they were like, huh. well, fine, let's put, them on, let's put the torpedo launchers on the bow. Because guess what? They won't get disabled if we get rammed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because in this time, when the Whitehead torpedoes were used, lots of ramming. That is a historically uh, effective tactic, depending on your uh, ship. And their ship. Mm-hmm. So, to make sure that they didn't get damaged on the bow, they installed guide rails and sleeves. And also to make sure that when the torpedoes were fired, they fired in a straight line and didn't go splash, turn, boom. So, first, they launched them with compressed air. But then they were like, I don't like that. That doesn't make much of a noise. Let's use slow-burning gunpowder instead. I was going to say, when you say launched with compressed air, do you mean like t-shirt cannon style or there was compressed air inside to help propel it as we have discussed earlier? T-shirt cannon style. Okay. Thank you for putting it in terms 
I understand. Oh, you're more than welcome. So the torpedo boats, the first ones, they had a frame that they would just push over, hang over the side, and they just drop the torpedo. The Royal Navy coastal defense boats used during World War I used rear-facing trough and cordite ram to push the torpedoes into the water tail first. Then they had to move very quickly to get out of the way of their own torpedo. That seems like a bad plan, but I guess you got to start somewhere. Well, they're launching it from the rear. Right. Tail first, though, so kind of away from you, as if you're leaving and shooting behind you? So you're going straight towards your target? Uh-huh. They drop it, and they hit hard port or hard starboard, and the torpedo will keep going. I got it. Okay. So they're aiming it with their boat. Right. But they're doing it in a stupid way. Yes. I think we can all agree on that. Mm-hmm. So they also, going up to World War One, started developing multiple tube mounts. Usually twin mounts and then later triple mounts. And then once World War II hits, they were doing like quintuple mounts or quintuple mounts. These had 21 to 24 inch torpedoes with rotating turntable mounts. So torpedo uh, destroyers had two or three of these mounts with like five to 12 tubes in total. Then the Japanese were like, hold my beer. It covered their tube mounts with splinter protection and added, adding a reloading gear, making them real turrets and increasing their broadside amount without having to add more tubes. So because that their Type 93s were very effective weapons, they also equipped their cruisers with torpedoes. And the Germans were like, you know what? Hold my... What, what do they drink? They drink beer also, but out of fancy steins from what I understand. So the Germans were like, well, hold my stein. And they put their torpedo tubes on capital ships as well. So from a, just a, a quick tangent real quick, as far as modern ships go, it seems like torpedoes are a very effective and mostly a, like quieter uh, weapon than main guns that you see on a World War II era battleship, for example. Uh, how many ships nowadays have that kind of deployment, or is that a, the, the main weapon of choice for most ships? I can see it building in this case here, but I may be jumping to the end. It is part of the arsenal. What ships carry them is classified. Okay. Other than submarines. Everybody knows submarines have. But modern navies use an assortment of weapons. You got torpedoes, you got missiles, you've got all sorts of things. Cool. We'll keep it at that. All this torpedo talk just, I don't know, just really got it in my head. Deck guns nowadays aren't really used much anymore, other than for close-in deterrence. Ship weapon complement is classified. So, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Well... That'd really put a damper on our relationship. <laughs> that would. So let's not do that. <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll, we'll drop it then. Uh, so the smaller 
boats like PT boats, they carried their torpedoes in a fixed deck mounted tube and they launched them using compressed air. And they were aligned either to, to fire forward or at an offset angle from the center line. And then later, the lightweight mounts were developed for their homing missiles. And they usually consisted of triple launch tubes used on the deck of ships. These were for anti-submarine use. Okay. So submarines, yes, modern submarines still have them. They use either swim-out systems or a pulse of water to shoot the torpedo out of the tube. Both of these have advantages of being quiet. And a lot quieter than other systems in the past. The reason they want to be quiet is because they're trying to be... They're trying to avoid detection from passive sonar. So either design uses either compressed air or a hydraulic ram. Uh, early submarines, when they had torpedoes, they were fitted with a number of different launching mechanisms in a lot of different locations. They were on the deck. They were in the bow or the stern. <laughs> they were amidships and... They had different launching mechanisms that allowed them to be aimed over a wide arc. Now, by World War II, designs favored multiple bow tubes. And not many, if any, stern tubes at all. So, most modern submarine bows are occupied by large sonar arrays. Which means that they need midship tubes angled out and stern tubes have mostly just disappeared yeah uh stern based tubes don't seem to make a lot of sense i don't think so that's why they drop them but when you're running away from the enemy and you torpedo at them what's that when you're running running away from the enemy uh you can launch torpedo at the that's stern. true yeah never mind i i would like to withdraw my uh doesn't make sense statement <laughs> oh it made sense so the first french and russian submarines carried their torpedoes externally in a device called the um this is a polish name and i'm so sorry about this dreswenski drop collars these were cheaper than tubes but they were not very reliable they had a metal framework that enclosed a torpedo that could be rotated to a position clear of the hull right before it was fired. The They kept developing it and were able to make it so that they set a firing angle. So instead of just coming out, they were able to actually tilt it as well. Oh, wow. But, you know, these didn't, they weren't very popular. They were cheaper, but not as reliable. Right. Both the UK and the US experimented with external tubes in World War II because, you know, it, including being cheap, they actually increased torpedo capacity without, you know, hugely redesigning the entire boat. I could see that. Which, you know, the UK and the US really didn't have the time to do anyway. <laughs> the British T-class submarines carried up to 13 torpedo tubes, five of them externally. And the U.S. 
was mainly limited to either the Porpoise, Salmon, or Sargo class boats until the Tambor came. So most American submarines only carried four bow and either two, sometimes four stern torpedo tubes. And the American officers were like, this isn't enough. This is completely inadequate. But, you know, I would be more worried about the unreliability of their torpedoes than how many I can fire at one time. Right. If you launch something that's ineffective, you can launch five of them and still be ineffective. So I, yeah. I can see what you mean. So we also have aerial torpedoes are launched off of either fixed wing aircraft, helicopters, or even missiles. They are launched from the fixed wing and helicopters at specific speeds and altitudes, dropping from hard point, hard points either under the wings or in bomb base. So handling equipment. So the lightweight torpedoes are easy to handle because they're light. There are also heavyweight torpedoes. They are heavier, so they're harder to handle. But then you got to think in the tight confines of a submarine. I wonder if, I guess there could be some submariners that could comment on the Discord channel, but I wonder if there's ever the situation where your torpedoes are turned the wrong way and you need to load them, and it's so tight you can't quite, you have to really like manage it in a way to turn it around so it can be loaded. Pro anyway, probably not, but uh, it's a funny idea. If it is, if it's happened, then the loader that loaded the weapons into the boat in the first time, they're fired. Mm -hmm. Reduction in rank, your yeah, your 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 career is toast. Yeah, you you go peel potatoes, bananas. bananas. You go peel bananas in the mess decks for the rest of your career. Now, it, so at the end of the World War Two. You know, the U.S. and Britain were like, we're taking your submarines, Germany. We're going to see what makes them tick. And one of the things they saw was the mechanical handling systems for torpedoes. And they were like, that is awesome. That is now ours. And we are widely adopting that. Because before then, the it was all done by hand. Seems like it's... I don't, well, which... I would say it's probably more prone to errors if you do it by hand, but I think it just depends on the quality of your delivery system, your mechanical one. Well, delivery systems are, there's a number of different ones. Oh, you, no, you mean by, lo, you mean loading systems? Oh, yes. Sorry, not delivery systems. I apologize. Loading systems. Correct. Yes. A lot of times it was either going to be by hand. In other words, three or four torpedo men. Pick up the torpedo, slide it into the tube. Or a lot of times they would use chain and hoist systems. Okay. Um, so that, I think, is pretty much going to be it for torpedoes. We did it. Yes, we did. We went from torpedoes were first called mines, and then torpedoes became torpedoes, and mines became mines. And then we went and how they went boom, and everything in between. Nice. And I think 
we are actually going to be able to be good with that because I think that made up the rest of our time. Cool. So what we'll do now is we will honor one of our fallen angels. We are working with HeroCars.us to honor one of our lost servicemen or women every week. Today we are going to honor Lieutenant Vincent Robert Capodano. He his hometown was Staten Island in New York. He was assigned to Navy Chaplain Corps, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, 1st Marine Division. He received the Medal of Honor, Bronze Star, and Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was September 4th, 1967, killed in action in Kong Tri Province, Vietnam. He was 38. So he was affectionately known as the Grunt Padre because he wanted to blend in with the infantrymen under his care. So Lieutenant Vincent Robert Capodano was given constant reminders that it was not his job as a chaplain to go on patrols, but he preferred to wear no insignia of rank on his uniform and to go where the fighting was the hottest and heaviest. He told a reporter, quote, I understand the trials better if I accept the same burdens they do. So according to the Archdiocese for the Military Services, he became a constant companion to the Marines, living, eating, and sleeping in the same conditions as the enlisted men. He established libraries, gathered and distributed gifts, and organized outreach programs for the local villages. He spent hours reassuring the weary and disillusioned, counseling the grieving, hearing confessions, instructing converts, and distributing St. Christopher medals. Such work energized him, and he requested an extension to remain with the Marines. It was during his second tour on September 4th, 1967, when the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, that Father Vincent Capodano made the ultimate sacrifice. He left the relative safety of his command post and ran through an open area under heavy enemy fire, administering last rites to the dying and giving medical aid to the wounded. He was struck down by machine gun fire awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroic conduct on the battlefield. His citation reads as follows. The President of the United States of America, in the name of Congress, takes pride in presenting the Medal of Honor posthumously to Lieutenant Chaplain Vincent Robert Capodano, Naval Serial Number 0-TAC-656197, United States Naval Reserve, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, as chaplain of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, 3rd Marine Division, reinforced fleet marine forces in connection and operations against enemy forces in Kang Tri Province, Republic of Vietnam, on September 4, 1967. In response to reports that the 2nd Platoon of M Company was in danger of being overrun by a mass enemy assaulting force, Lieutenant Capodano left the relative safety of the company command post and ran through an open area raked with fire directly to the beleaguered platoon. Disregarding the intense enemy small arms, automatic weapons, and mortar fire, he moved about the battlefield administering last rites to the dying and giving medical aid to the wounded. When an exploding mortar round inflicted painful multiple wounds to his arms and legs and severed a portion of his right hand, he steadfastly refused all medical aid Instead, he directed the corpsmen to help their wounded comrades and, with calm vigor, continued to move about the battlefield, 
as he provided encouragement by voice and example to the valiant Marines. Upon encountering a wounded corpsman in the direct line of fire of an enemy machine gunner positioned approximately 15 yards away, Lieutenant Cabodano rushed in a daring attempt to aid and assist the mortally wounded corpsman. That instant, only inches from the goal, he was struck down by a burst of machine gun fire. By his heroic conduct of the battlefield and his inspiring example, Lieutenant Capodano upheld the finest traditions of the U.S. Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life in the cause of freedom. So among the many tributes memorializing Lieutenant Capodano, the Staten Island Marine Corps League erected a bronze statue of him in 1977 in front of Father Capodano Chapel at Fort Wadsworth. So Lieutenant Capodano, thank you. That was a really fitting tribute with the chapel and um, the statue, and what what heroism. And um, I just kept thinking about duty and what it means to be just like a warrior or a servant or any any of those things, and how he's just stood in the he stood in the face of danger constantly, and and didn't seek any entitlement. He 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 was there to serve, and that was evident. It was really nice. But uh, yes, taking us out. I can do that. So, thank you for listening, number one, because thanks are always appreciated. Uh, if you want to listen to this or tell people about it, um, please do. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's USN, as in Navy, USN History Pod, with the at in front. And if you want to email us, it's U.S. Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. And if you want to join the Discord, which was mentioned a couple of times in this episode, and you can see stuff, hear stuff, meet with people that are interested in the same stuff, please do. Um, you can find that link in the show notes. And of course, there's links to links to hero cards, and their 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 school program, HeroCards.us. Correct. HeroCards.us. Perfect. Correct. Thank you, HeroCards. So with that, we're going to wish you guys a fair winds and following seas. We will see you again next time. See you later. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.